it's good to see all of you here this morning. Thanks for coming. Um, we've been on the topic of prayer really since the beginning of the year, and as we continue to consider our prayer life, I thought it'd be good for us to consider how we deal with times when we're grieving or sad or even depressed. How shall we pray then? And I'm going to read some quotes here about depression. They'll be on the screen for you. And after I read these quotes, I'm going to tell you who said them. And you may be surprised. Here's the first one. I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps more so than any other person here. And I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart and seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all my transgressions. Second quote. I know, perhaps as well as anyone, what depression means and what it is to feel myself sinking lower and lower. Yet at the worst, when I reach the lowest depths, I have an inward peace which no pain or depression can in the least disturb. Trusting in Jesus Christ, my Savior, there is still a blessed quietness in the deep caverns of my soul. Next quote. No sin is necessarily connected with sorrow of heart, for Jesus Christ our Lord once said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. There was no sin in him, and consequently none in his deep depression. And last quote for now. Poor human nature cannot bear such strains as heavenly triumphs bring to it. There must come a reaction. Excess of joy or excitement must be paid for by subsequent depressions. While the trial lasts, the strength is equal to the emergency, but when it is over, natural weakness claims the right to show itself. All of these quotes are from a man who was called in his time the Prince of Preachers. Now, a man who is still quoted today, this very morning, I'm sure, in pulpits all across the world, in his own time, never had any problems drawing a crowd because his sermons were so well-liked. A man influential in the pulpit, as well as a person who started a seminary for preachers, and a man who had such great faith but suffered from great depression. The man responsible for all four of those quotes is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. If you've been in a church where the love for the word of God is present, chances are you've heard a number of Spurgeon quotes. But you may not have been aware that the man suffered from long bouts of depression. Even while his sermons were impacting many lives, bringing confidence in God, repentance of sin, growth and maturity in Christ, Spurgeon was often melancholy. Of course, in his day, the term major depression hadn't been coined in that way, but psychologists who have studied Spurgeon, his writings and his wife's writings, have determined that he probably would have been diagnosed with major depression or something like that had he had today's clinical terminology applied to him. And yet, as Spurgeon said, the worst forms of depression are cured when Holy Scripture is believed. We talked a little bit last week as we were looking at one of the, some of the Psalms of David. You, you know, you shouldn't complain to God, or should you? 
Maybe another question we should ask ourselves in times of sorrow is, where is our faith in the midst of it? What do we do with our prayer life when we're overwhelmed with feelings of sadness? Does sadness by itself mean that we have a lack of faith or some unconfessed sin, as some preachers have claimed? Or can we have the heart of God, compassionate and to the point of grieving over things we see? As we continue to look at prayer, I'm going to highlight three men of God this morning who had sadness or depression. And hopefully from these men, we can learn some ways to deal with our own sadness, our own times when we feel down. We looked briefly at Spurgeon, now let's look at the prophet Jeremiah. He is often referred to as the weeping prophet. What was it that made Jeremiah suffer from this very pessimistic outlook he had? Can you believe that it was actually his faith that brought him to tears? It was. Because he believed God, he knew what God said he was going to do, and he wept. God was going to bring judgment. Jeremiah pleaded with the people to repent, but he believed that God would keep his word in judgment as well as in blessing. And so we're going to look this morning at Lamentations 3. This chapter of Scripture loses part of its beauty in the translation. The reason is that in the original language, the Hebrew language that Jeremiah wrote this in, it was actually written as an acrostic poem. Uh, And what it means is that in the Hebrew language, there was verses of poetry put together that corresponded with a letter of the alphabets. A comparison for us may be if someone wrote a poem and used the ABCs as a start for each verse. Like if I was to write a poem about my wife, it may begin, apple of my eye, she is my first love. Beauty in the sunlight, she is radiant. See, caring for others, she loves deeply. See, a poem of ABCs. Now, Jeremiah was not writing about his wife in Lamentations 3, but rather his acrostic would be more aptly considered as suffering from A to Z. 22 letters of the Hebrew um, alphabet for us, it's 66 verses. So scholars have said, well, why was it done in an acrostic? Some think that maybe that helped people to memorize it. Lamentation was uh, actually part of the culture, something that was often recited at solemn events such as funerals. And so uh, he's recounting a life full of suffering, but God is graciously extending his mercy to all of those who follow him. So let's start with the first six verses here, Lamentations 3. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. So Jeremiah is in a struggle, would you agree? Continuing in verses 7 and 8, he says, He's walled me in so I cannot escape. Has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. The third man I'm going to talk about is C.S. Lewis. As he was great grieving when his wife died, he said, But go to him 
when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside after that silence. That's how he felt when he was grieving his wife. What a shocking statement from the man who inspired the hope of thousands with his Narnia books, right? And he said again, you can't see anything properly while your eyes are blurred with tears. Is it the very intensity of the longing that draws the Iron Curtain? that makes us feel we are staring into a vacuum when we think about our dead. But then he also admitted that his view of God was imperfect. He said this, My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He's the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say this shattering was one of the marks of his presence? You have that happen? Your view of God is your own view, and he has to shatter it and rebuild it again and again and again. In Lamentations, it continues on at verse 9. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He's made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turns aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Great is thy faithfulness. The hymn is based on this. That although we suffer, question God, or even feel oppressed by him, which is our impression sometimes, no matter what, he is faithful. He will keep his word. The blessings and curses of scripture he will keep. For those who scorn him, the curses. For those who ignore him, the curses. But for those who trust him, who love him, and seek to do his will and abandon their life of sin and embrace a life in the Spirit, he will bless and see us through these difficult times. The end result of our faith is not in this life, but in eternity. And he will keep his promise to those who put faith in him. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Good? How can that be good? We ask ourselves, right? How could you possibly find it to be a good thing when you go through difficult trials? Those times when relationships cause you pain. When all you feel is beat up and hurt. How can that be good? It doesn't make sense to us. On the surface level, does it? Well, let's consider what James wrote about the trials. 
James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now there's an entire sermon or series on those two verse, three verses alone. And it goes without uh, saying that Paul wrote to the Romans as well, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. We know that, right? So the trials bring us closer. Our faith is tested. The testing produces steadfastness. That is, you make it through this time, and the next time the challenge is different, but you recall that God got you through, and you remember that, and you're strengthened by his word, and how he already has proved his faithfulness, and then you are able to even strengthen others because of your experience, and tell them that God will help you through this. I know it. And so you become steadfast, and when the steadfastness has its full effect, you'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, this is the ultimate and final state of the believer, who throughout life goes through various trials, but in the end, then we're made perfect. And they're going to look back. We're going to look back and say, look how God was perfecting me through those trials. But we often don't see it in real time. We don't understand or even like what we're going through, do we? The prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, would his sermons have had the depth of feeling and conviction of the truth of God's word had he not suffered? Would C.S. Lewis have written such wonderful fiction had he not felt the pains of this life? And what of Joseph? What of Paul? What if so many of the other biblical heroes did not God use their suffering in order that their ministries would be complete? How could James write about trials if he had not experienced the growth that accompanies them firsthand? Oswald Chambers famously said, Before God can use a man greatly, he must wound him deeply. Why? Because suffering aligns us with Christ. The disciples knew this and rejoiced to have suffered for the name. Do we know it? Do we trust that through our pain, God is teaching us, perfecting us, producing steadfastness in us? I'm going to finish this chapter of Lamentations And then we'll say some more. Starting at verse 28. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he causes grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and yet, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself in anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. 
All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears. Remember Jeremiah was the weeping prophet? Because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I've been hunted like a bird by those who are my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit, cast stones on me, water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You've heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Jeremiah's sadness stemmed from his trust that God would do what he had promised. And Jeremiah saw that what God had said would happen to the people of Israel for the purpose of drawing them back to himself would be painful. God told Jeremiah the people would be exiled and he knew it would happen. His sadness was based on his faith that God's word was true. Yet his ultimate trust was that God was righteous and just and those who were against Jeremiah would stand trial before the Most High and be judged. Now we looked a moment ago at James. Was James alone in telling folks to find joy in their trials? By no means. First Peter 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, maybe James and Peter were just kind of weird and thought trials were good. Well, what about Paul? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James said, count it all joy. Peter said, rejoice. Paul said, rejoice in suffering. And Jesus gave hope to those who seem in this world to be the weakest. And we find that at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Someone might say then, well, if we're supposed to appreciate our trials because the word of God tells us to, and now you're thinking, well, pastor proved that. Now I I can't say it's not true. It's in the word of God. But if we're supposed to appreciate our trials because our trials are doing the work on us of perfecting us, well, then isn't it sinful to feel grief? Someone might say, shouldn't we confess our sin of being grieved instead of rejoicing at our trials, but no, grief is not sin. Let's look again at Spurgeon's take. This valley, dark and gloomy as it is, is not an unhallowed pathway. No sin is necessarily connected with sorrow of heart, for Jesus Christ our Lord once said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. There was no sin in him, and consequently none in his deep depression. We have never known a joy or a sorrow altogether untainted with evil. But grief itself is not necessarily sin. A man may be as happy as all the birds in the air, and there may be no sin in his happiness, and a man may be exceedingly heavy, and yet there may be no sin in the heaviness. I do not say that there is not sin in all our feelings, but still the feelings in themselves need not be sinful. I would therefore try to cheer any brother who is sad, for his sadness is not necessarily blameworthy. If his downcast spirit arises from unbelief, let him cry to God to be delivered from it. But if the soul is sighing, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him, it is not a fault. If the man cries, O God, my soul is cast down within me, therefore will I remember thee. His soul's being cast down within him is no sin. Heaviness of spirit is not, therefore, on every occasion, a matter for which we need to condemn ourselves. The way of sorrow is not the way of sin, but a hallowed road sanctified by the prayers of myriads of pilgrims now with God. Pilgrims who, passing through the valley of Baca, made it a well. This is an encouragement to us. When we feel we're bad Christians because we're feeling down or sad, And you could add to this the feelings of loneliness, even the unhealed scars of abuse we might feel. There are preachers who would tell you, just let go and let God and just declare your freedom from this or do some self-talk and you can come out of it. It's all up to you to speak positive words and your life will change. And many people have tried that and found that after saying those positive words, they still feel bad. In fact, when I was a kid, I I tried, because I didn't like wearing glasses, I would confidently pray, I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm not going to need glasses again. Or I'd go swimming and I'd pray, when I come out of the water, I won't need glasses anymore. And I believed it would happen, but it never worked. Some of the TV preachers said it would work if I had faith, and if I had the faith of a child, but I still had to wear my glasses. And those preachers say, well, if it doesn't happen to you, the problem was your faith wasn't strong enough. 
In the same way, many people suffering from sadness have been told, just read your Bible more, or just pray more, or just trust God more. And they try all of these things, and they still feel the pain that they're going through in this life. And what would have been better for those people is not if someone said to try to talk them out of their sadness, but to sit down with them and mourn alongside them. What would have been better was for them to read how Jesus suffered and how his sufferings were real and brought him pain, which he expressed, and we can read about it in Holy Scripture. What would have been better for them is if we shared with them that in our sufferings we align ourselves with Christ. What would have been better for them would be to share with them the many encouragements in Scripture that tell us not to ignore our pain, but to process through it in light of his word and realize that he is indeed loving us and strengthening us through it. He's perfecting our faith. You know what the real problem with suffering is? The real problem with suffering is that we have to suffer through it. The only way to get through suffering is to suffer through it. And the only way to suffer, suffer through it and make it through it to the end is to trust the word of God. So trials perfect our faith, our endurance, our character, our hope. And it makes sense to us to know this is true. Think of the stories you like to read or hear or see in a movie. In all the greatest stories, the hero or the main characters have some in trial that they have to endure, some suffering They're faced with obstacles to the happiness that they're pursuing. No one wants to read a story about someone with an uneventful life, do they? Why is that? Because an author cannot develop a character worth reading about who has never faced a trial. That might work for a comic strip, but no one will read a novel about people with no troubles or trials. It wouldn't even seem real. The heroes of faith in scripture, the great characters in literature, even the superheroes in the movies that uh, people watch are going through great trials and difficulties. There's always something, right? And so it is that our God who loves us is developing us as characters in his great story. He has chosen to allow us to go through trials and difficulties because someday we will become the characters he has in mind. And just as an author of a novel is the only one who knows where the character development arc is heading, so God knows how our lives will turn out. But in a novel, in order for it to have any plausibility, there are some constants that always apply. And so it is that God has given the constants that apply to us. We find in Scripture that he has given us, that he told us why there are trials, and, he, and how we are expected to act in them. And the promise for the believer is that he will complete our story in a favorable way, even if we don't feel it at the time. Now, this morning I've given you three examples of men who had a great impact on the faith and on the church, Jeremiah, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis. All of them went through some very dark times where they questioned their own salvation, their faith, their eternal destiny. All of them are considered great men. There's no shame in doubt. There's no shame in despair unless that doubt and despair is not remedied by a lasting trust that God's word is true. Getting through these seasons of difficulties requires us to use all the tools God has given us, reading his word, being encouraged by the church, and crying out to him for help. 
So what are we to do with this message? Well, in light of our overall topic of prayer, let's consider what we've looked at. Clearly, the Word of God addresses the fact that people, including Christians, go through sufferings, trials, times of grief and sadness, times when we cannot seem to get centered. How do we pray then? Well, here are some things I hope you will remember from this message. First, remember the fact, as Spurgeon pointed out, that if you feel sad or depressed, that does not automatically mean there is sin in it. Disabuse yourself of that thought. Okay? If, if you feel depressed or sad, it does not automatically mean there's sin in it. And as Spurgeon himself point, or Spurgeon pointed out, Jesus even said this in Matthew 26, 38. Jesus said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Sorrowful, sorrow cannot be sinful, because if Jesus had sorrow and did not sin, then our sorrow is not necessarily sin either. Second thing I want you to remember, when we face those times and we're tempted to bow out of our prayer life, or we're tempted to bow out of fellowship with the saints because we feel there's something wrong with us, that would be a mistake, a big mistake. God has given us his word. He's given us his people, and he's given us his son, his great high priest. His word directs us, comforts us, challenges us, convicts us of sin, convinces us of truth. His people as imperfect as we all are, are for our benefit. The church is God's creation. He is the one who gave it to us. No one should attempt to live this faith alone without the church. We need this fellowship. At church, we receive teaching, encouragement, and opportunities to serve others. He gave us his son Jesus, who suffered as we did and was tempted, yet was without sin. Because Jesus suffered the pains of this life, he can sympathize with our sufferings and he can heal us. Emotional healing, though, rarely or probably never takes place in an instant. Emotional healing takes a lot of time. If you lose a loved one, it may take time for you to even bond with others because you feel that you're in fear of being hurt again. If you were mistreated, you might be uneasy coming into a new relationship because you're afraid of being unfairly attacked again. But the greatest danger in allowing the hurts of life to cause you to question God's word, if you question his word because of those in his care for his own people, that's the danger. Remember that it isn't true that your trials mean God is angry with you necessarily. It could mean that. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It may be that he's giving you those trials because he loves you enough to cause the growth that the trial's bringing to you. He is making you steadfast. He's shaping you to be more like Christ. I can testify to this. Almost daily, I am better able to understand someone, better able to help someone, better able to care for someone, and I can do that better because of the trials that I myself have been through. Believe me, you wouldn't want a pastor who could not understand the pains of life. Your pastor has been hurt. Your pastor has suffered grief and has, suffered and has even questioned the sovereignty of God. 
But my trials are not exactly like your trials. We all have our difficulties. But there's something even more important than having a pastor who knows what, it's to, what it is to suffer from grief. You have a Savior who understands. We have hope that our sufferings will be turned to joy in the end. And I'll close with this, 1 Peter 4.13. Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Let's pray, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this word.